Hi, and welcome to another episode of Biocompatibility. Don, we have a repeat guest in Kent Grove and a new guest in Tim Schatz from Abbott Bio- Abbott as well. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess this means not only, you know, we don't scare people away too bad, but they, they're, you know, willing and able to con other people to join them, uh, join us as well. So this, yeah, this, this, this is working out. This is working out. <laughs> I agree. This is a really fun episode. It's a little bit longer because we had a lot of items to cover. We're talking about ISO 10993 part four. And any of you that have had reasoning to to use this standard and, and do this evaluation, know that there's lots of different testing that could be performed for this. So we went over a lot of it in this episode and even some future state. Yeah. Yeah. And and I'll say too, you know, some people may see that we're going to be talking about part four and decide not to listen because they never have to deal with hemocompatibility. But as we talked about in the podcast, sometimes, you know, it comes up when you shouldn't have to expect it. Yeah, it when does. you least expect it. <laughs> True. Good point. Good point. Well, our, well, our guest today, like I mentioned, uh, Tim Schatz from Abbott, he's a senior biocompatibility specialist, and he's been on that team there for three years. And he's responsible for writing biological evaluation plans and reports to support all phases of development across Abbott's products. He's previously was a technical scientist at American Preclinical Services, and he worked there in developing next-generation in vitro biocompatibility tests. So he's had a lot of background in some some development and testing, and he's really, you know, got a wealth of knowledge and so was a great addition to the team today. And Kent Grove, I'll give him another intro. He's a principal biocompatibility scientist at Abbott. He's responsible for providing complex biocompatibility testing strategies and support for all of the Abbott medical device regulatory needs. He has a combined experience of 10 plus years in the field of toxicology and biocompatibility. He also previously was at another CRO um, where he served as director of biocompatibility services for APS and as a study director at Wuxi. So both of these guys have come from kind of the testing lab background. So we have a lot of camaraderie there in, in our background. So both have, a, have worked extensively um, in hemocompatibility and working on a new blood loop device that we're going to hear a lot about in this episode. Yep, for sure. A lot of good information to be shared. So definitely a, a good one to listen to. Yep, a lot of good stuff. So thanks for joining us today on this episode, and we hope you enjoy listening. Welcome to Biocompatibility, the first ever podcast focused on the biocompatibility of medical devices. NAMS is happy to bring Biocompatibility to you where each episode features leading industry experts and their discussions on biocompatibility challenges. Be sure to visit www.namsa.com for more information and to access all podcasts and transcripts. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Today we are talking about ISO 10993 Part 4. Don, this is, is it the single most misunderstood segment of 10993, do you think? Man, that's a tough question right off the bat, right out of the gate. Right off the bat. <laughs> well, I knew you couldn't no, answer no. that by yourself, so we have help. <laughs> I, I would say I would say no. I, I, I'm still giving preference to part 18 for the time being. Okay, uh, well, okay. Of the biological or biological-based tests. <laughs> there you go. With that clarification. Yeah, with that clarification, I'll give it to part four. I'll give it to part four. When, when well, you have to deal with it, because not everybody has to deal with it. Though, so. That's the part that's misunderstood. Yeah, that's that's the beginning, the most basic element of it all. The most basic element. So that's why Tim and Kent are here today to help us, to, you know, discuss this and and talk about it. Kent, welcome back to Biocompatibility, and Tim, welcome to your first episode. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. We're excited to have you. So, so what the heck? <laughs> it's 10993 part four. Who wants to give me a general overview? I can pretend like I know the nuances, and I, I probably do, but one of you can surely describe it much better than I can. I, I'll just start with the title Selection of Tests for Interactions with Blood. Technically, the title. So that's easy peasy. You know, it's got something to do with blood, and you would assume that your device is touching it in some way. But, um, but yeah, Which so, would cause part of the confusion. Uh, yeah, yes. So the, the title doesn't say selection of tests for interactions with circulating blood. Um, right. It just says with blood. So, you know, 
that that's that's where I guess that the most basic understanding of the standard where we start, you know. But I, I would expand on that and that Kent Tim feel free to to fill in. But I mean, in that essence, when we talk about blood in this context, it's you know contact with circulating blood directly or contacting contacting circulating blood indirectly at its most basic element. So that's why when I said earlier, not everybody has to deal with this. Because not all devices indirectly or directly contact circulating blood. And if you don't, well, you'll probably never look at the standard. So for the most part, until somebody asks you a confusing question about it. Tim and Kent, do you agree with Don? <laughs> Agreed. Yeah. And what I, what I can say, at least from my experience with hemocompatibility in my career, is, you know, a lot of the misconceptions that are drawn in is that when they feel that, you know, if a product is being implanted and it might be exposed to some blood because of the surgical procedure, but it's not actually in contact with circulating blood directly or indirectly, I think that's probably the most common confusion because right away, if you're new to the field or you're working with a, a newer company and they see that, well, we're going to be implanting this product and, of course, there's going to be some blood involved and so if it touches it, I think that's been, you know, my number one area where I would see people get a little confused by it. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it, it goes even a little farther than that. You know, if we even just look at the tools used to implant, you know, you can very quickly get confused being, you know, we're having this surgical procedure and my tools are touching this blood, but, you know, it's not really the intention, right, to be to remain in contact with that blood. Uh, so, yeah, it definitely gets confusing for a lot of people very quickly. Yeah, yeah. I always say, uh, you know, when we're training people about biocompatibility in a general sense, the question always comes into play, you know, when do you have to address part four and it's like well like you guys both said if if it was any device that ever contacts any type of blood well then all devices for the most part that go into the body you would think well this must apply but it, but it truly doesn't it's that circulating blood component all right really so becomes key so what are the devices then okay so circulating blood what's the laundry list of the most typical i, I i'll know heart valve right obviously that's a big one what are the most typical devices that this applies to? Sure, yeah. I mean, we have uh, a wide breadth that we're looking at, um, you know, catheters that are used intravenously, you know, either diagnostic or therapy leads that are coming into contact uh, with blood that are being directed into the bloodstream to the heart, delivery systems uh, intended for implant. The list goes on. Kent, you know, you feel free to jump in. Introducers, all that stuff, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the whole yeah. laundry list, but... Also, the part that can also be somewhat confusing, too, is also keep in mind within those catheters and delivery systems and things like that, there can be side ports, right, that have indirect blood contacting. So it's one of those things when you're, you know, the best advice we can give to the industry is that step one is determine, you know, obviously if it's in contact with circulating blood, but then step two is make sure that each device that you're looking at, that you're counting for direct circulating blood and also keep in mind that that same product might have some indirect circulating blood, like a side port and all the tubing that goes with it that might push saline through into the bloodstream. Now that's not sitting directly in the circulatory system, but it's certainly passing fluid from the catheter into the patient. Certainly. Yeah, great point. So, you know, lots of misinterpretation of when it might be needed or overlooking when it might be needed as well. I think we see errors both directions. Some use it too much and some don't think they need to use it. So Don, I think you have some examples for us. Do you are you going to test us a little bit on when we need it and when we don't? Or at least when people told me I need to talk oh, about okay. specific aspects of it, which we haven't defined yet, but but that's okay. But yeah, one thing I was just going to throw out in terms of devices, the other, the whole extracorporeal circuit type, type thing, dialysis circuits and all those things. I mean, it can get kind of overwhelming and a little mind-numbing pretty quick when you get into some of those big circuits where blood's leaving the body going through umpteen different components and then back into the body again. So there's indirect, there's direct, direct of different types, you know, inside the body, outside the body. So it can get fairly confusing, but to kind of, sure. I think, illustrate the points that we're talking about, you know, I was going to do our two truths and a lie game at the beginning, just to kind of illustrate this. Of course, I modified it and made the three truths and a lie because it's a kind of multiple choice format like A, B, C, and D, just like we're all back at school again. But I'll give you guys the uh, the question here, and you can figure out 
of these four things, which one is a lie and which three are true? So I had a regulator request in vivo thromboresistance. We'll talk about that later. For all of the following types of devices, except for one, all right? Scalpel blade, orthopedic implant, fabric, a wound dressing meant to clot blood, stop bleeding. <laughs> they that's all a sound tough one, isn't it? <laughs> okay, so we have to figure out which ones they actually asked one. for and which ones they did yeah. not. One of them, which one they didn't actually ask me. Yeah, one of them they didn't actually ask for. It's a lie. The other three are true. Wow. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, man. I'm okay, gonna... I'm gonna guess. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> you go, Kent. Okay, I'm going to guess just on the sheer fact that it's orthopedic. I'm going to guess that the orthopedic was not asked for. Okay. Anybody else? Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with the uh, scalpel blade. Ooh, very nice. I actually had a different one in mind all along. I'm going to go with the piece of fabric. All right. And the winner is. Wrong. <laughs> no, no, one of you is right. One of you is right. Kent is correct. Never had it. That okay. I can remember for an orthopedic implant. <laughs> Dang it. <laughs> Kent, you win nothing. Yay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> what are of our biocompatibility lives? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, you think about the four. I mean, the one thing that all four of them had, even though that these descriptions are a little less than specific. I mean, in their use, they were definitely all going to contact blood. I mean, you put an orthopedic implant in place, it's, there's going to be blood involved. The scalpel blade, yeah, there's going to be blood involved. Um, <laughs> the piece of fabric, the piece of fabric was actually part of a cardiovascular wrap. Okay. Yeah. That's where you tricked me, because I had that thought. I'm hey. like, this could be like a PTFE stent graph, and it, yeah, okay. And then, and then the wound dressing, obviously, blood going out, but this one literally was, you know, had a clotting component to it so which made it's it kind of what it's supposed to do right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so yeah. it leads you to that challenge you know should i really investigate something that's supposed to clot something further when it comes to thromboresistance but anyways um <laughs> so that's the point of efficacy yes i guess so but yeah but it illustrates the point that we kind of started with when does hemocompatibility apply when does it doesn't obviously it can get confusing so when we talk about this standard in particular like some of the others like part five is Cido. Yep, there's different types of Cidos to perform, but it's really all about Cido. So this is obviously all about blood compatibility, but there are multiple types of evaluations that are discussed in the standard that also lead to multiple types of strategies when you have new devices. So does somebody want to talk about maybe some of the different, like we could do hemolysis, complement, and then thrombosis testing, maybe talk about each one of those and different types of strategies for determining which tests you use? Sure. Maybe I can kick it off with just like out of part four, the, the definition of hemocompatible kind of like leads right into this from that point of view, which the, the definition able to come in contact with blood without any appreciable clinically significant adverse reactions, such as thrombosis, hemolysis, platelet, leukocyte, complement activation, or other blood-associated adverse event occurring. So, I mean, there's kind of like the, the basis for the, you know, to support the definition of hemocompatible kind of breaks it into those, those different areas in terms of hemolysis, platelet, leukocyte, complement, and other, well, other blood-associated adverse events, which could be the, you know, Pandora's box of something else occurring. But, yeah, I, I guess we think about a new device and going into things like, I guess the one that always comes to my mind, and Kent, Tim, you know, I, I'm not sure from your standpoint, but how, hemolysis is always the thing that comes to my mind. You know, lysine red blood cells, the simplest, most straightforward one to some degree, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Um, oh, go, go ahead, Tim. <laughs> nope, you first. Sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's certainly a, a place that people uh, immediately jump to. You know, hemo's name. When you're talking about blood damage, it's, it's pretty literal, the bursting of red blood cells. You know, it, it's, it's definitely a, a good place to start. But we need to realize that what Part 4 tries to do in assessing blood damage is it really uses a battery approach to assess the, you know, the overall interaction of the medical device with blood. So, you know, hemolysis is certainly a part of it. And for really anything that's going to have blood contact, you're going to have to consider hemolysis in 
in some degree, you know, whether it's going, you know, again, your, your, your device classification comes into it, you know, indirect, you know, if you only have an indirect blood contacting method, we have two different methods for assessing hemolysis, direct contact and, and what we would consider based off an extraction method. But yeah, certainly a lot of other components when you're talking about blood as just, you know, a biological fluid, you know, we have plenty of other systems that kind of feed into there. And, you know, we have to start considering the other parts that you mentioned there with thrombosis and complement activation, um, you know, and the different ways to assess those. But yeah, certainly hemolysis is a great place to start. Yeah, Ken, go for it. Very good summary, Tim. Uh, I agree with everything Tim just said. One of the other parts, you know, moving to the next assay, I guess, because you summed that up pretty nicely, is the complement activation. It's been kind of a, a thing in the industry where it's an interesting assay because we perform it, but there's really no pass-fail criteria, which can make it difficult for people to interpret or you know, really understand the assay. A lot of times with those values, I mean, we have, we have our controls in place, but what do you do if you're you know, a little bit higher than the control and things along that line? So a lot of questions that we get regarding with complement activation you know, kind of relate really to what does a clinically relevant complement activation level look like, things along that line. And uh, what I can say is uh, for groups that are working with multiple products or products that might be, you know, changing along the way, a lot of times we have the luxury of doing comparison studies for those companies that might be a brand new startup. Uh, you certainly might want to you know, investigate and do a comparative study against a product that might be similar to yours and has the same classifications, et cetera, um, to help you really understand that assay. And even better, one of the things that we can say about that assay, too, is that in the long term, if you continue to test the same product line or same types of products, you can start to build your own historical range, which can help guide you to understand what are the levels we're looking for that it, in the event that you don't necessarily meet the comparison of the controls within that assay. But certainly another one that we get a lot of questions on as we use it throughout the uh, industry. Certainly. And I think, so you mentioned complement has no pass-fail, right? It's a clinical test that's been adapted or adopted, whichever is the right word, for medical devices. The hemolysis doesn't really have a pass-fail either. So a lot of this is interpretation against control. Is that is that kind of, in general, the the blood compatibility tests? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good way to look at it. You know, the ASTM, you know, is what we're, we're ASTM, the 56, uh, when we're talking about hemolysis. It gives you certain ranges, um, you know, zero to two, uh, two to five, and then greater than five, and you get no hemolysis, slight, slightly hemolytic and and hemolytic, but there's not, there's not in there something saying you pass or fail, even though you're based off control. Right. So again, if you're looking at this from like a systematic level, any of these results that we're looking at when we're talking about any of these testing, these tests, really, you have to kind of look at them as a whole. And if you have slight hemolysis, is there somewhere else in our testing battery that we can look that might point to, you know, is it maybe compromediated hemolysis? True. Um, but yeah, it's a good point. I mean, even when we, we go back to the basics and say, you know, good place to start a hemolysis, there, there isn't pass or fail criteria there. And, I, and if you look at like hemocompatibility overall, I guess it'd be more challenging to find a test that has pass fail criteria. Yeah, that's kind of what I was saying. That's kind of, <laughs> Those that don't. <laughs> they all walk into a room and none of them belong. None of them can tell you if they're passing or failing because they don't have that, that ability within the test method itself. But I guess a lot of biocomp tests are that way, you know. They are, they are. And complement's a little bit different too because, you know, when we're, you know, as Ken established early on is that there's there's no, there's no real clinical applicability to it, right? So when we're looking at it, we don't have ranges that are defined or levels of complement activation that are considered acceptable or not. So when we look at it, we have to take it into consideration and really look at what does it mean, right? And, and I think that what we're trying to do and what we've seen recently in the shift is, is apply some statistical significance to that. You know, we can look at it either with, you know, ANOVAs or, or T-tests, but we're not necessarily getting to the point of, of how is that clinically relevant? And that, that's definitely confusing uh, for people who are coming into this new, and even people who have been doing incompatibility testing for quite some time, saying, what does this complement activation test even really, what is it telling me? Certainly. So what are some other, uh, you know, if you have a new device, some other assays that you might have to look at performing to complete this battery of showing that, that your product's safe to be 
in that circulating blood. This is one where we jump to um, Kent's favorite, right? <laughs> Kent's favorite. All right, Kent, so, I'm punting yeah. this one to you. Kent, tell All us about right. it. <laughs> this has been a lifelong career for me coming into biocompatibility is going to be the thrombosis testing, also known as the first one is the non-anticoagulated uh, venous implant model. They refer to it in the industry as the NAVI. I've been speaking quite heavily about this one for probably the past 10, 12 years, looking at this in great detail. And one of the things that I can say is just a quick outline for those who may not know what it is, is that this is where it's the first study where you're going to take your device and actually put it in the circulatory system. Now, there's a number of ways in which you can do this. Uh, the standard is, you know, the jugular or femoral vein. Sometimes you can be a lot more complicated, get into the vena cava, things along that line. Um, but ultimately, the general goal of this study is to not use any anticoagulation, put your device in the circulatory system, let it dwell for four hours, and then at the end of the assay, we'll explant it, take a look, photograph, and score the amount of thrombosis that is present. In addition, that we always also look for any downstream thromboemboli, because sometimes you could have a product that might not show any thrombosis on it, but then we're seeing that downstream thrombosis is occurring downstream from the product. The issue with this one, though, and we've, Tim and I have been working on this together for at least eight years. Tim, correct me if I'm wrong, maybe a little bit longer, but we've really studied a lot about, you know, what are the interactions with this and how does, you know, what are some of the issues that we're seeing? And very quickly, we could see, at least when we first started with thrombo studies, is there wasn't a lot of visualization on that assay. And so what would happen is people would, you know, stick with the jugular vein model. And I can distinctively remember some of my first couple of studies that I ever ran as a study director running the thrombo was that they would put devices in that were just, frankly, probably too big for the jugular vein. And they would come out clotted. Well, the first reason for that would be is because you're restricting blood flow, but back then, we didn't use any imaging to ensure that blood was properly flowing around the devices. So we would have these large amount of failures that were just truly inherently because the way that it was implanted or there wasn't monitoring the blood flow, which helped a lot of products going forward when we kind of really started pushing that message to have a better outcome within the thrombo study. But even with using visualization, so the first thing I would say to anybody who's new into this is, don't ever do these studies blind. You wouldn't want your surgeon blind. You definitely don't want your implant right. to be blind during this assay. We highly recommend that you use contrast to make sure that when you inject the contrast, that you see that there's blood flow going around the devices to just rule that out right away. The other thing that we'll see that is a complicating factor is that every animal can react a bit differently to the if you're using coagulation or their baseline, what we call active clotting times, can be different. And so some animals actually have a little higher variability between their clotting um, cascades, if you will. And there's some animals that clot a little more easier than others. And so you run into this problem where you might be, and this is quite common, is that you'll start out with two animals and do the implant, and then there's always a tiebreaker to go with it. Now, if you do visualization and you do the proper placements and you do the proper flow, we found over time that that helps to decrease the amount of times that this happens to us. But keep in mind that there's still variables between each animal that can also impact it, and it may not even be device-related. So it makes that study very frustrating for a lot of people in the event that there's still some variables that can play in uh, that can give you a potential failing result. Uh, yeah, again, the if, other I can, news, if I can jump in there. Oh, sorry, go ahead. You know, is that, you know, when you're looking at this Bronco, you have a test and your comparison of the same animal, right, right and left side. And then you, you touched on the physiological differences, but even within the animal, you can have anatomical differences where your right and left jugulars can be different sizes. They can have different number of valves in them. So there's these inherent challenges that when you're trying to assess your device versus you know, something that's on the market is you could be hamstrung before you even start that study, depending on what side you end up on. Excellent point. Certainly. So, so other, obviously, I remember for many years, and Don, I don't know if you can even count on all your appendages and all of our appendages, <laughs> how many times you've had to answer questions about a thrombo study that, quote unquote, didn't pass. There's been tons of confusion about even the scoring of these and the discrepancies maybe between laboratories or between associates or, you know, I remember FDA discussions about, you know, how do we normalize this? And so you guys have been doing work 
obviously, to try to normalize it some. So I don't know if you want to start talking about that now or if we want to go into, um, you know, some other analyses first, like PTT or P&L. You guys tell me what's a, what's a good transition here. Sure. Maybe if, if I can touch real quick on um, in the event that with thrombosis, if you're in the NAVI model, that you do end up seeing failures, you are allowed to go into using the anticoagulation model. And that's where you right. actually inject low-level heparin and monitor the system. One thing that we can say about this, and this is pretty recent, those can also have some conflicting issues because what you don't want to do is inject so much heparin that when you're monitoring these active clotting times that it goes well above 1,000 and the equipment stars out. If you do that, the FDA will come back and other regulatory agencies, not just the FDA, but that's the first one that popped to mind. They'll come back and say, well, you, you know, over added the heparin to these animals and that they now question whether or not that's even clinically relevant or, you know, quote unquote, you could even put a cotton ball or cotton swab in there and it wouldn't clot up because the blood is so <laughs> overly heparinized. <laughs> so they typically will start to guide you within a range. It's just one thing that I think we should definitely make it known to the industry and help out the FDA here is that there's certainly a range that they're going to be looking for. And what we have found with this, and it also speaks to the differences between uh, animals and animal variability is that if you want to get a decent ACT range and you don't want it to have it fluctuate too much, you really want to start your anticoagulation therapy right away. Don't implant the device. Monitor it. And we typically will go 30 minutes to about an hour where we're monitoring the ACT and making sure we're not seeing some serious fluctuations. Now, what's interesting about this type of technique is that I would probably say you know, at least 60, 70% of the animals, they will dial in within about an hour. But there has been studies, and Tim, you can contest to this, where we're sitting <laughs> in the lab and 10 hours have gone by and we have to just stop and it never stabilizes. Now, wow. what's interesting about that is that if you would just do the standard way where a lot of people jump into that assay, they'll, they'll go ahead and put the device in, well, your ACTs are going to be all over the map. And even worse is if you get outside of you know, specific ranges that you're targeting, then you can get those issues where if it spikes too high, then it, it questions the validity of the thrombosis study itself. So it's interesting to see that, you know, even in just that type of design, it'll kind of hint to where we've been going with a lot of the in vitro studies that we'll talk about later, is that there's definitely an inherent difference between one animal to the next. And if you're going to end up doing the NAVI model, you have to dial in a range. You can't just you know, dose them with a bunch of heparin and star out above a thousand on these ACTs and expect that you're not going to get some serious kickback from it. But when you start to really dial them in, you'll start to see what we're talking about between, you know, some of the, the technologies that we're inventing or some of the, you know, methods in which we've been coming up with is that you can really see that each animal can respond differently, and there's got to be a way in which we can try to standardize that. But the first approach, at least if you're still in the in vivo model, and we highly recommend for everybody, is that you don't start doing the implant right away. You slowly add the heparin to the animals, and you monitor them with active clotting time, and you make sure that it stabilizes before you start the implant. And image everything. It's conflicting yeah. <laughs> reviews on that, and I can't say it enough. I've been saying it for 12 years, and I've seen so many thrombos in the last 12 years, not just the ones that I run, but also the study director. It's very interesting to see how the blood flow can be impacted by many of those reasons we just discussed earlier. If you ever get a Christmas card from Kent, you would expect it to be his family, but it's really just four images. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I need to get on your Christmas card list, then, apparently. That would be fascinating. Oh, that's, that's the number one. Uh, you know, if, I, if there's any take-home for the listeners on the thrombosis testing, the most important thing you can do is make sure to visualize proper blood flow, because if you don't have that right away, it's already stacked against you before you've gotten mm -hmm. started. Very interesting. All right. So what else? How other, what other ways are we using to evaluate blood compatibility? Because each one of these kind of focuses on something different. Yeah, maybe, maybe just from that standpoint, kind of like, you know, from a strategy for a device that you're, you know, submitting, 
and it, and it definitely has circulating blood contact. I mean, if you look at the standard the table one in the standard, you know, it tries to split it up between, you know, an evaluation of hemolysis and thrombosis. So, you know, we talked about hemolysis maybe being, for the most part, the most straightforward uh, hemocompatibility test. But then talking about in vivo uh, thromboresistance, we've mentioned that one, complement activation. And then, you know, the standard has, if you call them columns in, in table one, for coagulation, platelet activation, and, and hematology as well. All sitting under the the collective uh, topic of thrombosis evaluation. So like trying to, to figure out their, you know, their impact on the, the thrombosis uh, of the device that comes in contact. So I guess, I mean, from that standpoint, if you have something that has circulating blood, certainly hemolysis, component activation, and thrombosis evaluation are going to be like those three things that you'll see mentioned in and FDA's biocompatibility guidance under the section for hemocompatibility. But then, I mean, there's these other methods that get brought in to help in the evaluation as well when needed. I, I guess, you know, just breaking them down, uh, you know, PTT, partial thromboplastin time, platelet and leukocyte testing, SEM evaluations, all those coming into play, especially when you have a device that that maybe isn't a new device, but a modification to the device that you're trying to evaluate for the change of the device and its impact on thromboresistance. And I guess just, again, not to harp on the standard too much, but that's another thing that's in the standard. You know, it talks about, well, before it gets into the whole discussion of, you know, types of evaluation and methods that you might use, if you look at clause 6.1, it talks about the just how you can try to justify just about anything it's got bolded text in 6.1 general requirements since it's a horizontal standard sound rationales can be supplied to justify the choice of test category or categories based on the device being characterized so you you know there's a lot of methods that get presented but the standard does indicate that you know if you can create your justification around what your situation is you know, you might not need a test for every one of these categories. And that certainly, I think, holds to be true in a lot of situations. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Ken was going, he, you know, he's talking about the, the AVI, NAVI models. But certainly, you know, we can, can jump in and say that if you have a well-designed preclinical study, you know, it's done GLP, you have, you know, let's just say it's, you know, for a catheter that's intended to be used for less than 24 hours, if you have it in, this, in the, the protocol that's well-established that you're going to collect thrombogenicity endpoints as it relates to biocompatibility, you can stand in there and not necessarily perform one of these standard Navier AVI models. You know, and I guess once you have that position set and you have some sort of clinical established, um, you know, in circulating blood and the in vivo model, this is where those in vitro static tests come into play more. So say that you're doing the design iteration, you know, to take the, the catheter example, you're not necessarily going to want to go back into doing the NAVI again. And that's where, when we're assessing for thrombogenicity, we can start bringing in the PTT and the PNL. And you mentioned STEM, really that imaging done there. Uh, we, when we perform STEM, we're typically looking at it because these static chemocompatibility tests don't look at the, um, really the geometry or the surface finish of the device. It's really looking at the material interaction uh, with the blood you know, if you do have some um, surface interactions, they're going to be minimal since you don't have a dynamic flow. So when we're looking at those under imaging, we're going to see whether, you know, the surface characteristics as compared to your your already marketed device, whether there are any sort of significant diverges, divergences. And if there's not, you can really justify not doing that navi navi model. And you can say that your, your static and feature tests were enough to mm-hmm. uh, satisfy what, what the NAVI would be looking for. And so when That's you talk really... about PTT, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Finish your thought. Oh, I was going to, I was going to move into PT and PNL. So please. Oh, no, I, I just think that that's an interesting point that, that to make is depending on your situation, whether you have a new device or, you know, a modification to an existing device that may already be marketed, you might have a different approach here. And, and I don't know when you look at other parts of the standard whether that applies as much as it does to hemocompatibility, maybe a little bit with obviously whether you're doing subchronic or chronic studies, but you know, really you can have different approaches here because of the different types of analyses that are available depending on your situation. 
Absolutely. The, the legally marketed comparator device, how that language starts coming in, becomes very important uh, once you start looking at design iterations. And, you know, <laughs> for every reason that Kent gave, we do our best to avoid the Envivo models, uh, repeating them. Sure. Uh, so having that comparator device <laughs> yeah, and having that in our, our in vitro studies really gives us good leverage uh, to justify doing or not doing certain tests. Yeah, and yeah, I, I, would, I would say that, you know, largely it, it's a part four specific thing. You know, when you get into you can certainly talk to chemistry and when you're doing comparative studies that you start getting that a bit more as far as strategy and, and what you're looking for. But it's, it's really a, a backbone of part four once you get into some of these. Or really anything. <laughs> yeah, your, you know, I just, you know, I learned fun. something. It's a, uh, you know, part four has some original attributes that I never realized before. <laughs> Good. So what are the others? So you were going to go into, um, so P&L, right? Let's talk about what that stands for and what that does. And then some SEM. Sure, sure. I'll take P&L. Can't you want to take DTT? And we can cover those. And, you know, the P&L really when you set one. Going the whole thing. Uh, <laughs> right. He's got a radio voice going right now. I'm like, man, he's in the groove. <laughs> I, I'm, I'll, I'll write that down. I'll consider a profession, James. Add it to the resume. <laughs> That'll be on your Christmas card this year, right? <laughs> there you go. In my studio. Uh, yeah, so P&L, you know, Don mentioned the, the columns, and, and really this kind of falls in fetch hematology columns. So PNL stands for platelet and leukocyte, and really it's, it's as simple as that. You're exposing your device to blood that's been freshly drawn, um, typically from uh, one of our your colleagues in the lab, um, and you're taking that, you're taking that and, and exposing usually a portion of the device or representative portions of your device to that blood, and then you're, you're simply counting if there has been any sort of reduction in your platelet and leukocyte values. And then you're comparing it to, in this case, you're comparing it to a control from, if you, if you follow ASTM 2888, you know, if you, if you do it stepwise, you're comparing it first to a control. But if you start to see that you have significant reductions from your control, again, you're going to go to a, uh, a legally, marketed, legally marketed comparator device. And so really what you're trying to do here is you're trying to make sure that your new device or your iteration performs at least as good. Uh, as at least as well, if not better than your your legally marketed device. It's a, it's a pretty quick test. You know, it, it takes an hour of exposure. It's definitely more sensitive than it used to be. The standard has been updated. It was updated in 2019, 2018, right now. And so, you know, it's it's more sensitive sensitive due to the fact that it's now uh, performed under low level heparinization rather than being performed fully citrated. So, if you've run it in the past and it wasn't, you know, in the past couple of years. Then you will, if you were to throw your same device, then you're very likely to see very different results. Before the PNL, the way that the system was set up, it was a little broken in the fact that you know you're you're kind of using fully anticoagulated blood, and mm-hmm. then you know it was it was kind of like a checkbox, like yeah, of course I'm going to pass PNL. So it didn't give a whole lot of information. So if you were you know if you're going to do a new submission and you're seeing PNL and you're expecting the pass like you did the first time, you might not know. So just something to be aware of for for people. Which brings up one quick. <laughs> Oops, sorry, before we move on from the p I'll bring up one quick uh, topic of discussion. You know, it's interesting as, as we go to conferences and you, know, you kind of get some feedback from others in the industry. And some of the questions that have been coming out, you know, about the p that's been a lot more sensitive is that, you know, if you're going after, like, let's just say that design iteration that Tim was talking about, right, and you're planning on doing this assay, these, you know, CTT, P&L, SEM, et cetera, uh, in, in lieu of doing the in vivo thrombo test, and sometimes people will now come across with this new assay and a lot of questions have been coming out because they have been seeing those results, exactly what Tim's been saying there, is that they're seeing that they're not necessarily passing it. And what do you do in that situation? And one good tip that has been very successful for us is that, you know, Tim and I went out to some of the, some of the laboratories and we've, we've taken a few studies in our internal laboratories as well. And we started, you know, really dialing in what is the clinically relevant PNL look like, and using some of the technology that Abbott has created with the point of care systems, etc. We're able to determine that you still can run a, a platelet leukocyte in the event that you fail underneath the, the more sensitive assay. You can actually heparinize it, right, and kind of take the, the same uh, playbook out of the thrombogenicity testing as you've got your NAVI and your AVI model. Well, now with the platelet leukocyte being more sensitive. The same rules can apply because now that it's more sensitive, it certainly has the ability to clot because you're more in line with the conditions that you'd be seeing in the NAVI. So 
if you get yourself into that situation where you're not passing the platelet leukocyte under the new regime where it is much more sensitive, keep in mind that there's certainly strategies in which you could add heparin back into the system, continue to make it be more clinically relevant, and run the assay again, and the same rules uh, tend to apply as the NAVI and the AVI as well. Mm -hmm. So we have the AVI and the NAVI, and then the NAPL and the APPLE. Right. We phone them in quick and see if they'll vote yes. I, uh, <laughs> no other amendments, just that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you know, and it, it definitely that it's part of ASCM two eight 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 that that sort of says that, right? It says that if you still have um, depletions that are that are worse than your test article than your control article, then further basically it says further anticoagulant or, or further thrombogenicity testing should be considered. And that doesn't it, it's pretty ambiguous to say that, but you know, from a clarifying point, just adding some heparin back in and and really as Kent was was mentioning, using those ACTs to see that you're in a clinically relevant range. You do end up, you know, that's what we have taken on as our further thrombogenicity testing, and it's been successful for us to to show that when, you're, at least when your blood, even if it's static, is in a clinically relevant heparinization range, that you know that you're definitely assessing it in the similar way that you would with the Abby Nappy model. Very good. Apple and apple, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> there might be a small trademark to overcome, but I think we can win. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that was good. <laughs> yeah, and then okay, so going into PPT, you know, it's it's another um, it's another test for clotting, and and really what you're looking at in for the partial thromboplastin time is that you're looking to see it's a sim similar to the PNL is that you're taking fresh drawn blood and then you're exposing it to the plasma component and then you're you're essentially checking the time it takes for that plasma to clot. And so this standard's also been updated in the past couple of years. Before, we were just looking at general reference ranges as compared to the control. You know, you reference ranges of like 70%, 50%, 25%. And that's kind of out the window now. And we've taken a more statistical approach to that. And, and what we're looking at now is how your, how your test article compared against both your, your controls. And, and if you have it in the, in the model, your comparison device, and then you're performing a one-way ANOVA. And seeing if there are statistical differences between those clotting times. So another way to assess, you know, if you have significant um, reductions in clotting time, uh, then it gives you some indication as to whether your device might be a potential activator of your coagulation cascade. Certainly, you know, that it's it's a better approach than having cutoff ranges. You know, being able to again compare to a legally marketed comparator device and kind of giving it a little bit more relevance as to where it falls. Yeah, it's, it's a standard test. You know, I would definitely run PPP and PNL together if you're going to take these, these static approaches. You would expect to see if you have platelet reduction. And I guess it, it goes to say that when you're looking at the PNL, really you're just looking at the platelet values, um, assuming that they are kind of being uh, captured in some sort of thrombus. And I would expect to see that if you have reduced platelet values, if you have reduced PPP times. So just it kind of gives you a, a look at the system uh, in more of a battery approach since you don't have that whole... Um, in vivo response that's happening there. All right. Wow, you guys have got way above my head. Don, are you catching all this? <laughs> I am. I am. <laughs> I'm, trying, I'm trying, to keep, trying to keep up. Trying to keep up. And, and I think, apple. That's all I got to remember. Yeah, that's all I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I actually had to mute there for a second, Tim. I got to give you credit because you just kept going and you were smooth sailing. I had to hit mute and laugh a bit more. <laughs> That's like the story of our lives right here. Yeah. That is, that yeah. is the dynamic. It doesn't get much more real life than biocompatibility, huh? Is that what we're saying? There you go. That's right. Wow. <laughs> Getting the true flavor. I'm starting to reflect on some things right now and thinking about things. So, uh, yeah, but uh, a little bit bigger than biocompatibility, just that my life now has become bio compatibility i guess i don't know that's right i have to ponder on that a little bit farther <laughs> there's no crying in biocompatibility right? <laughs> yeah 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 certainly not don't go too deep which i think is actually okay so talking about this is a good segue to you know as we alluded to in our technologies that we're developing in these in vitro models uh, segueing into the blood loop and getting something more dynamic 
And Kent, I know it's another topic that you love, so I'm going to pass it back to you. <laughs> Ooh, we love the blood loop. Well, for those who may not, um, listeners may not be aware of what we're talking about, I'll kind of rewind back a little bit of history, what brought us to where we are today, and then talk a little bit more about the assay itself. And of course, what the future of that is looking like. This one's an interesting topic, the blood loop for us, because it actually started, believe it or not, you got to give credit where credit is due. Um, we were out at the FDA presenting on imaging with in vivo thrombosis testing years ago. And it was a very interesting uh, meeting with them because we were showing them that obviously those placements and everything that we talked about, the FDA visualization really impacts the study outline. But what was amazing at the end of that meeting is I love the, the way that the FDA is, is willing to be very collaborative with you. Um, they actually, they're the ones who brought it up. Um, way back in the day, they said, you know, what do you think about in vitro models? And at the time, I was taken back by the question a little bit, but the first concept that came to mind to me was like, well, if you're going to run a blood loop and it's going to be heparinized, it's very difficult to replace the NAVI model. But it, 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 the idea and the conversation started there. So we said, hey, we'll certainly take a look at it and see what we can do. And from there is where we really started dialing in on what's the differences in blood, you know, how do we you know, control all that stuff and, you know, kind of moving from there. Fast forward, uh, we've gone through multiple design iterations of the blood loop to where we are today. And today what's interesting, you know, and along the way, we've always been meeting with the FDA, uh, having conversations, uh, showing them what we have, getting feedback, et cetera. And the most interesting piece that came back just recently was uh, within the last couple of years is that, you know, once we figured out how we could have the blood within the system without making it clot up, of course, and not have any of those factors. The next step was, you know, if we're going to make a blood loop or a system in hemocompatibility powerful, a lot of the things that we just talked about is that you really want to have some sort of controls, right? And there's really no pass-fail criteria in a lot of these hemocompatibility tests. Well, the first thing that came to mind for us in the blood loop is that we need to have a system in which people can run it and they can trust the data that's coming out of it, and there's not all these other variables that might be impacting it, such as blood flow, positioning, et cetera. And one way that we came up with it is that we went to the drawing board, and this actually took us quite some time to not only find the right material, but find the right design, but actually what we created was a positive and a negative control where we can put in the blood loop. And so what we do is, let's just back up here for a second, is we, we grab the blood, they're put into four different loops. One loop at that time had a positive control, one loop had a negative control, and then we were just running comparative studies just to see how the assay would work. And over uh, quite a bit amount of time and technological advancements, materials, assessments, et cetera, we actually finally came up with a control in which the same blood that was drawn from the same animal ran at the same time, one of the controls won't clot, and one of them would clot perfectly. And by perfectly, I mean, it really has a lot of designs with flow analysis that we use to make sure that it has a uniform clot across the board on the control so you can truly trust that it's a, it's a clotting positive control, but also helps to ensure that you're going to score 100% thrombus on that, on that control. And the interesting aspect is it gave us a bit of an edge where we're sitting there going, okay, now we have the ability to assess the variability in blood that can come in from one donor versus the next. And what's interesting is that when you have a, a true positive and a true negative control, it helps us understand how the blood is behaving specifically from a thrombosis aspect. And so the idea is that, of course, if you're running this assay and your negative control clotting, that means the blood's going to be hypercoagulative, right? So therefore, if your device comes out and is completely clotted, you know it's the condition associated with the blood. And vice versa, if your positive control comes back squeaky clean looking like the negative control, <laughs> then you can't trust that your device looks squeaky clean as accurate as well. So this one was a huge feat for us, and we were very excited about it. And, of course, once we had it, we ran it. You know, we always like to run it by the FDA, and so we went out and, and talked to them and showed them. And it was a great conversation, and the one thing that I really liked the feedback that they gave us, and this, this I have to openly admit, it took us a while to come back from this one, but they, they enjoyed the positive and negative control. But the one piece that they brought into, into the scenario was, you know, it's tough to evaluate the sensitivity of these hemocompatibility assays. And so what we would like is for something to be in, as an intermediate. So something that 
doesn't necessarily fully clot, but doesn't necessarily come out squeaky clean. <laughs> and, you know, first we're like, yeah, yeah, we got this, we got this. And walked over, like, oh, man, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it took well, us a possibly while. possibly go and, wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it was an interesting concept. And I love that they, that they shared that with us because it's really, if you truly want to understand your assay, right, you have to have multi-tiered levels. And that can tell you that it really can reflect on how sensitive your assay is, but also draw an even further in-depth knowledge of how the blood is behaving within the assay. And so that one probably took us a good year back at the drawing board. But long story short is we did come up with, we, again, back to materials assessments, uh, designs, we came up with multiple iterations. We ran and ran and ran and ran all these controls. And where we are today is that we were happy to report uh, back to the FDA uh, that we do have now a negative control, an intermediate, and a positive control. And the power here is, is it's all differentiating itself from the same blood from the same donor. And that part is where it's huge because it's, it's finally giving us a way to scope how the assay is running and also be able to scope how to evaluate the device itself. And so moving forward with this type of testing, the idea is going to be that since it is dynamic, you would no longer need to run the PTT, PNL, and SEM, or even in vivo thrombosis, if you have this assay up and running, because it's really accounting for the dynamic ability and it's also helping you to understand how the blood's behaving. And it's very specific in this assay, which is very exciting for us uh, to be at this stage. The part where we're going next is now that we have it, um, we've been sending it out. And of course, we know that you guys have one who's been helping us with validating this method, which is fantastic. Each one of the laboratories were having us help participate to create this product and help to really get this next design, if you will, of the blood loop out to market. The long-term goal here is that it's going to be commercialized and we're still working. I mean, COVID hasn't done us any favors at this point because we're a little, <laughs> we've been at a standstill for a little while on this. So, for those of you who have heard me talk about this before, it might be a broken record, but <laughs> we literally are working on the design for commercialization at this point um, for the blood loop. And the, the long-term goal is going to be, now it may or may not be Abbott, that's uh, still some discussions that are to be had, or it might be you know a third-party manufacturer that would help create these controls. But ideally, the goal is that you'd be able to buy all the heating uh, tables that we've created for this assay, you'd be able to purchase the controls and then readily be able to um, run this assay either for commercial or even if it's an internal exploratory uh, study for some of the other um, bigger companies out there. That's the long-term goal uh, for where we're going with this. And what I can say for the current status of the loop is the previous generation that we helped to create has been accepted readily in both U.S. and E.U. But going forward, the design that we've created is much more controlled than what has been used in the past. And it has a lot of feedback from a lot of scientists in the industry that we've been incorporating to help the design go forward. Interesting. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's certainly something that I think the industry is excited about when you look at minimizing unnecessary in vivo testing and the future of our, our testing world, what that looks like. So. When you talk about commercialization, so you mentioned you've had it readily accepted for certain instances, I'm assuming, in the U.S. and EU. It's not in the standard. What does that look like? Are you in on the Part 4 committee, and are, we, are they in a rewrite? I think what the last one issued in 17, so probably wouldn't be due for a rewrite, right? Right? <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 right. Right, right, right? <laughs> yeah, ideally, um, you know, during this, round robin time that we have other laboratories uh, participating. Of course, it does include a lot of people that are uh, within the part four standards. So ideally, right. the long-term goal would be to incorporate that into the ISO standards um, or some form of it, because I know that there's, to give credit where credit's due, there's other uh, blood loops out there as well that other uh, groups are using. And so we certainly wouldn't want to necessarily rule out the use of other techniques of the blood loop, but in general, and I know it's kind of already been hinting at in the current version, but in general, yes, we would like to um, release this long term 
and even the full method, if the standard would have us, we would certainly love to give that full method in what we're doing. Okay. Good stuff. Don, do you have any questions about the blood loop? I know you probably understand it a lot better than I do. (laughs) Well, yeah, just because I've, you know, heard Kent talk about it before and talk to others in in our laboratory and mention it in in its design. But I don't know, Kent, if, if, like, for those that haven't, like, ever seen uh, a presentation from you or, you know, heard about a blood loop, can you just give, like, a like a really high level overview of, of the general concept that we're talking about. And I, I know you've talked about the, the heating table, the controls, it, you know, that it's a, it's a closed loop model, but just again, just like the 30 second overview of what this actually looks like, if you will, all, all, albeit, you know, as best as one can describe it. Sure. Sure. So the, the general overview is that um, we have a, a heating table and that went through, I mean, it's more, engineering than we'd ever want to talk about, but we have a heating table now that you can literally, it's, uh, it's about a three foot by three foot table. And what it allows us to do is we actually place four different loops in the heating table. And amongst that table, we have four different pumps that help to circulate blood. Now, each one of those loops is independent, but the blood is all coming from the same donor. And the concept that we have right now is that you would put your controls you know, so you have your positive control, your negative control, and your intermediate in the assay. And then you've got one loop left over that you would put in your device in order to evaluate it. At the current state that we're releasing it, we're trying to stay as close as we can to the NAVI model. I mean, we can certainly get a lot more technical at a later point and come up with other markers that we could use within this assay. But our, our if we call it the Gen 1 blood loop, it's really to just target very specifically the exact assay that we're running for either the NAVI and or the AVI uh, going forward in the future. And so what we do is, so once you have your setup, the blood is running for four hours. And at the end of four hours, we will take down the table, um, you know, drain all the blood, do the explant, if you will, in, in, the, in the tubing there. And then we'll evaluate not only the positive, negative, and intermediate controls, but then the devices as well. And they get scored exactly the same way as we do in the in vivo thrombosis studies, and we photograph everything the exact same way. So really, we're trying to stay close to being as close as we can to the current model just to get the initial launch. Long term, what I could tell you is that we certainly do have uh, other fixtures and things like that. They're going to be used for much more complicated devices than just a straight line catheter or a catheter that we could still put in that might have a, a distal tip that might be more like a paddle or something along that line. But we've got other fixtures where more complicated devices would still be able to utilize the system. And one of them, of course, is also being a heart valve. Cool. All right. Very interesting. Yeah. 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 Like I say, I just think that, again, for those people that maybe never have heard of it, seen it, helps give a, a visual idea of what's going on and just like a technical aspect of, of what where it stands right now, what you could actually evaluate in this model versus, you know, a, a full in vivo type model. Yeah. yeah. The other thing I will add that. is I'll have to change my Christmas card. <laughs> 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 it won't be fluoroscopic imaging anymore. <laughs> I, I was just going to, you know, add to kind of drive home the, the wholesale stitch here is, um, you know, I, for anyone who has done in vivo models probably know why we'd want to move away from them. But, you know, for those that haven't, and, you know, they're questioning why we would want to use this new method when we have these, these methods that are already approved in part four. You know, it, going back to talking about the thrombosis, the in vivo thrombosis model, we don't have the issues of, of the physiology because we're using blood from the same animal. We don't have the issues of anatomy because we're putting it into this bypass tubing. We have positive and negative controls, which the in vivo model doesn't have. Uh, we're controlling the, the ACTs continuously. So we're really in this, you know, we're not just, uh, you know, and it's also obviously at a benefit of not using um, animals unnecessarily, but it's really refining the method to get something that's really just looking at our, our device rather than having to overcome all these um, model-based challenges. Yeah, for sure. It's the three R's, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> Absolutely. Whatever we can do to, to help, I think that's, a, that's, you know, cool. And, you know, there's other, obviously lots of other, in vitro technology coming there that's going to help us do that in the future when you look at irritation 
you know, that one obviously is, is happening, you know, there's, you know, hopes and dreams out there for sensitization and, and certainly these, this hope and dream for thrombogenicity, I think is, is absolutely a great addition to, um, to the panels and the offerings and the options that medical device manufacturers will have going forward. So kudos to you guys for the great work. I don't even know where to begin. I have to tell you though, it's funny. I'm sitting here having a memory. <laughs> years, years ago, I worked for a small mechanical fatigue lab in Missouri and our lead there, I, you know, he was, he was a chemist and he was a scientist and he was always coming up with things and he was using that technology then. And I remember um, a lot of, of bovine blood coming into our facility one day and trying to do something like this. And that would have been like 19, no, I'm not going to say the date. I'm not going to date myself, but it obviously was not this decade. Um, so, no. <laughs> but I mean, I'm sitting here going, oh my gosh, I remember talking about this years ago. And, and interestingly enough, I of course didn't understand it then. I was really in the mechanical fatigue world, all I understood was benchtop heart valve and benchtop, you know, stent testing. And so I wasn't quite sure where he was going with this, but uh, it's really interesting. I might, I might send him a, a link to the podcast and let him listen to how you guys have made his dream come true. <laughs> it's <laughs> well, fascinating. It's Christmas card too. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So one of our, and you guys may have seen them, one of our little heart valve machines we had there looked like a little like kind of R2-D2 robot. It would do mechanical fatigue testing of heart valves. It was the cutest little thing. Um, And it was fascinating. (laughs) So anyway, enough of Sherry's, you know, traveling down the, the, her memory lane here. So we have come to our two truths and a lie segment and we all got together and decided we would just have Tim do it. <laughs> Don kind of did his at the beginning. <laughs> Don tried to kind of did his at the beginning. And, and I said, I, 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 I came up blank today. And since Tim is a newbie, his his first time on the show. We thought let's let him be our, our game today and take us out um, on a two truths and a lie. All right. So biocompatibility has a hazing process. Um, yes. Okay, yes, so, we do. That's right. <laughs> uh, allegedly. Little, uh, I guess I have to <laughs> give, a little, give a little context here first. So a couple things. I, I, I know that many people have seen the movie, but some people haven't. But I'm going to use the term like carry at the prom. For anyone who hasn't seen it, just you're getting covered <laughs> in quite a bit of blood. <laughs> uh, and then the second one, uh, when we're doing blood loop testing, there's uh, when we're filling a loop, Kent and I, we have this step, which we like to call the leap of faith. And the leap of faith is when you're filling the, blood, the bag and somebody has one of the tubing is held above their own head while the other person is uh, <laughs> using the pump to turn on and off to, to get the, the blood flow. So the leap of faith is when the person you're trusting is going to turn off the blood at the right time. Otherwise, you, just, you basically get a blood kaiser. Okay, that's my background. All right, so my first one is I have never gone to carry at the prom while performing testing for a client on uh, blood transfusion bags that were full of blood. My second one is I broke a whole rack of freshly drawn blood all over the floor while the president of my former company was giving uh, a client tour through the window. And then my third one is Kent has never covered me in blood during blood testing during a leap of faith. <laughs> <laughs> Kent is number three true. <laughs> I'm gonna go with number three being the lie. I, 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 mean, I, think... I will let you guys. Let you guys go. I was going with three as well. I was going with three as well. Okay, Kent. I know you have a you have a slight advantage here, but um, I'll stay quiet on this one. <laughs> all right, all right. So the one that is not true is actually it, Kent has never actually covered me in blood during a leap of faith. We are we have a spotless record to date. Nice. Um, <laughs> it's it's quite impressive when you consider how many opportunities we've had. We have managed to not do that one. Uh, so the the uh, the fake one is uh, I've never gone carry at the prom while performing testing for a client. Uh, I actually had a client in my past life do that in front of me. And I can tell you when you're the study director and that happens to your sponsor in front of you, it takes a lot to keep your composure while you watch that happen. Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> and yes, I did. I did. Uh, I, I was drawing, Kent and I, we are our friends. We used to, 
to work with. Um, I was drawing his blood while there was a tour going through. And as soon as those clients passed the window, I turned and my forearm knocked the entire rack of blood and I shattered it completely across the floor. <laughs> but they didn't see it. <laughs> oh, they did not. The look on their faces was pretty good. That's my that's my human compatibility through uh, future so on. So you guys have literally used the term bloodbath. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And like, so the, the blood the blood loop used to be in a water bath, and that that was a fun cleanup because then I mean obviously we're not giving ourselves a bloodbath at that point, but it was it would the water bath would really be a bloodbath. So it's been used many times in different iterations. Wow. Well. Thank you guys so much. What a, a great yes. episode full of lots of good information. I'm sure that um, that everyone that is, is involved in this business is completely appreciative of your time today and sharing all this information. So, Don, do you have any um, final parting words for us? I, I, I don't think so. I, th- I think we've uh, hopefully given the viewers a lot to, to think about um, and some certainly some educational benefit from what we talked about today um, with regards to part four, but um, definitely a worthwhile topic and uh, you know something that uh, you know if you if you have to deal with email compatibility, you definitely keep your 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 eyes open because I'm sure there's going to be updates or hopefully be updates um, in in the future as well as to where we go with evaluating this endpoint. Yeah. All right. Thanks, y'all, so much for your time. This has been a really fun episode and um, hope you all have enjoyed it. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy biocompatibility, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast store. For free resources and material, remember to visit www.namsa.com slash resources slash podcast.